ahead and turn to uh, Luke chapter 14. Uh, you know, as we continue our nice leisurely walk through Luke. And let me, let me go ahead and give you the headline for the day, okay? As Jesus tells this story or this parable. In life, you got two options. You can be humbled or you can humble yourself. Hello, in the scriptures, you got two options. You can be humbled. That's what I often choose, uh, more often than not. Or you can humble yourself. And so uh, we're talking about humility today. It's funny, you know, you never really arrive at humility. And if you ever have like a glancing thought, like I'm kind of crushing it at humility right now. Like here comes the be humbled part, like right then. And it's for, the, for this reason, I never really enjoy preaching about humility. You know, it's like a pretty tough. So, that's, so the title of the sermon today is not humility and how I achieved it. That's not, the, that's not where we're going today. Preaching about humility is actually a very humbling experience. And so to be clear, I'm a man, a proud man, uh, pursuing humility by the grace of God. So I do not speak as an authority on humility, okay, in any way. So I paused there for Courtney to yell amen. I thought that was coming, but so, uh, but I'll say the real joy about preaching about humility is I get to brag on Jesus. We follow a humble king. Can you imagine an all-powerful God who gives sacrificially, who sacrifices his own son, who gives mercy. Think about the times, not just when you messed up 10 years ago, think about the times you've messed up in the past two weeks, and he still goes, ah, that's my guy right there. That's my girl right there. I love you. Who can fathom a God, an all-powerful God who's humble in nature? And yet, that's who our God is. We experience it. We see it. It's easy to nod along with that. because So I love preaching about humility for that reason because it's so easy to brag on Jesus because he's the humble king. And so um, that same God has promised to give grace to the humble, the scripture says. And so that character trait of humility is the second most taught character trait in the New Testament, right behind love. So you could say that love and humility, that that's the foundation of the Christian life, love and humility. Okay, let's look at Luke 14. Verses 7 through 11, Jesus tells a story. He says, it says, now, Jesus told a parable, a story to those who were invited. He's kind of talking to people around him. And when Jesus noticed how they chose the places of honor, so he's kind of noticing the crowd, and he notices that they're kind of jockeying for the best seat. They kind of stand in the front of the line so that they could be seen by everybody. So he notices that, and he said to them, so he makes up this story. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, amen. You got to give your place to this person over here. And then you will begin with shame, the walk of shame, as it were, to take the lowest place. Jesus says in verse 10, but when you're invited, go and sit, choose the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he can say to your friend, bro, you got to move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will actually be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Arthur Miller, he wrote the famous uh, Death of a Salesman play. You've probably heard of it. Uh, he used to say, in every successful drama, there's something which makes a person say, hey, that's me. So you hear the story, you see the movie, you read the book, and you go, hey, I, I see myself in this part of the story. And so great stories kind of become mirrors in that way, whereby self-recognition becomes self-understanding. 
So we see ourselves in the story, and then we can begin to understand ourselves just a little bit more, right? And so many of the stories that Jesus tells, you know, he teaches like this often. He'll make up a scenario, and he teaches like this often through story, and they have that effect. And so what we see is by studying his stories, we kind of end up studying ourselves through that way. So, so, but more than mirrors, and, you know, by which we understand ourselves, his parables often become windows into the mind and heart of Christ himself. So, These stories are far more than just knowing ourselves, which is important and it's helpful, but they actually help us know who God is as we see him tell what's important to him. So yes, you know, this story points to our condition, but it also gives us a divine remedy because if if the Bible just points out fault, that ends up, we end up with despair and we just end up sad. Like, yeah, I do kind of try to take the best seat in the house. And that's where it ends. But, but then Jesus, he doesn't just leave us with despair. He is himself the way. He shows us a pathway out in this life and, of course, in the next. And so in our text today, in Luke 14, Jesus puts his audience in this hypothetical situation. So let's say you're at a wedding, all of you. Let's say you're at a wedding, and the best seat in the house is open, and you're kind of tempted to go take the best seat. Uh, but not just to, like, have the best seat, but to kind of be somebody. You see that seat. You see the potential. You, you, you see that you could kind of take some honor for yourself, but then the opposite effect happens. The guy who's over the seating comes to you and goes, hey, actually my guy right here, he's going to take that seat. And then you got to take the walk of shame all the way down to the end of the table. Everybody sees you take the walk of shame. The crowd is silent as you walk up to the nosebleeds. Everybody's like, oh, can you imagine? That's so embarrassing. Okay. And, and it just, it's just shame, right? You ever seen somebody like try to move down to better seats at a ball game? I've never had the guts to do it, but I've seen people like walk down there and, you know, it's like the fourth inning or like the third quarter. So you're like, I don't think that's their seat. I don't think that's where they're supposed to, but you don't say anything, of course. And then you see the usher come down and ask for their ticket. And you're like, oh no. And, and you feel the pain with them. You feel the shame. And they're like, they act like they don't know. And then, you know, and then they, get, they take the walk of shame back up to their seat. Or do you remember in Seinfeld, whenever Elaine, she was back in coach? And she sees that there's a spot in first class and she goes to take it and she gets caught and then she makes the walk of shame all the way back to the back of the plane and all the people are judging her like, you think you're better than us. Who do you think you are? And so that's what Jesus is saying times 10. That shame in a social setting, you try to be better than you are and then you're humbled, right? And so just shame, trying to be somebody, but you're worse off than when you walked in. And then Jesus explains the way that his kingdom functions. That's what he's doing. In verse 10, he says, He encourages us, he encourages these, he's speaking to religious people here. He says, take the lowest seat. And it feels counterintuitive, but I'm telling you, Jesus says, take the lowest seat for yourself, sit in the worst section of the the upper deck, and then the host is gonna see you at the party and go, nah, bro, man, what are you doing over here, man? Come and sit with me at the head of the table. And that's how God's kingdom works. And by willingly taking the lowest place, the host upgrades you and moves you up. And then the point, the point of his stories in verse 11. For some people, no. For the Methodists, no. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the person who chooses humility and takes the lowest place will ultimately and inevitably be exalted. So this is how God created the world to work. That humility, that choosing the lowly position ultimately exalts you, sitting yourself in the good seat and stomping on others up, up the ladder at work, that that inevitably embarrasses you and, and, and you know, puts you down. And so it's counterintuitive, right? I mean, like we're, everything that we're preached and everything that we're told in the world, you know, we're told that taking puts us ahead, you know, uh, take what you can get, 
we're told. Uh, put yourself first, but in God's kingdom, that actually sets you back, and it does not propel you forward. So many of you have probably read this book, Good to Great, uh, if not at least heard of it. I- I've never had a boss that didn't ask me to read this book. I mean, I-, I think it may be the greatest leadership book of our lifetime. And so it's, a, it's not a Christian book. I-, I think Jim Collins is a Christian, but it's not a Christian book. But it's just a leadership book, okay? And it's more than just like one guy telling what he thinks about how you should be a leader. It's like a team of, he and a team of researchers got together and they studied all of these companies and all these CEOs to determine how does a company go from being good to great? How does a leader, instead of just being a good leader, how could you be a great leader? What, what are some common things that leaders and companies have in place? And then how, what does that transition look like to go from just kind of being good and satisfactory to really great? And so as they did this research, they found two specific characteristics that, that CEOs, the CEOs of the great companies shared. So two, two, CEO, two characteristics of CEOs and all of the companies pretty much that went from good to great. And the first one's not surprising. You probably would have even guessed it. They were, these CEOs were driven and willing to endure anything for their company to be a success. Driven, willing to endure, that makes sense. But the second one, the researchers were totally shocked to find. These leaders uh, had in common as the researchers uh, found that these leaders, uh, these driven leaders were modest, humble, and self-effacing. These huge, productive, fast-going companies, they were modest, humble, and self-effacing. These high-impact leaders of great companies consistently pointed to the contribution of others and really didn't like drawing attention to themselves. And he wrote in the book, Jim Collins, they they never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people producing extraordinary results. Uh, So God's way ends up being better than the world's way. So inevitably, the way that God created the world to work, works. That as you choose humility, even as a CEO of a big company, that as that goes throughout the culture of the company, that the company gets better. The company itself is exalted along with your leadership. And so the point of Jesus' parable in Luke 14 is that choosing humility is better and safer and wiser for you and your company and your classroom and the team that you're a part of every, and the family that you're a part of. Every organization, big and small, that you're a part of, it's better and safer and wiser to choose humility day in and day out. He created the world to work in such a way that those who exalt themselves are going to find humility, and those who humble themselves will inevitably, inevitably be exalted. And that's proverbial in the sense that it serves us more generally than specifically. So you may go to a wedding this Saturday, and you may sit at the lowest place, and the host may not come to you and go, hey, man, come to the top of the... No, so it, it doesn't necessarily always work out in specific terms, but generally, Jesus is teaching us that in your company, in your family, in your classroom, in your job, in, what, in your friendships even, that as you choose humility and grow in humility, that the world, your world and the world around you flourishes. Okay, And so uh, one truth that we see all throughout the scriptures is that humility gets God's attention. He loves it, okay? Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. I'm gonna look to the one who was humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. God is clearly, you look through all, all throughout the scriptures, he is clearly and decisively drawn to humility. Yet humility is under attack today. You know, pride is the new ethic of our society. Uh, you, you know, everywhere that you look, you're told to do what you want to do, and that's good because whatever's in you, that, that's, that's, you need to really be pride, you know, proud of 
whatever choices you want to make. And I got to be honest, it's kind of interesting to preach about humility in June these days. In 1954, a psychologist asked 10,000 teenagers uh, if they were a very important person, okay? Are you a very important person? In 1954, 12% of teenagers said, yes, I'm a very important person. The same in 1989, 10,000 teenagers were asked the same question and 79% of teenagers said, yes, I'm a very important person. And I, I would venture to guess that in 2023, that would be over 90% today. And, and I'm all for having self-confidence. Like, that's good. Self-confidence is a good thing. I'm not advocating for being just like downtrodden, like Eeyore, and just self-loathing all the time. I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. I'm bad. I'm terrible. I deserve the lowest seat. No, okay. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, Okay. Uh, so with pride, you end up worse off, but in the same place, much like a, a gentleman in Kansas, uh, the homie Lawrence John Ripple. Pride gets you the end result much like him here. Okay, I get, we got the picture of the news article here. So, so he, he robbed a bank to get away from his wife, and he was sentenced to home confinement. Okay. This is pride in our lives. What we're really trying to get, we jump on the hamster wheel and we work and we go and we try, but we end up with kind of the same result, but worse. This is pride in our lives, okay? You try to exalt yourself and you try and you strive, but you end up in the same place, but then with just a worse, <laughs> a worse version of it. You know, modern pride is the gateway drug to narcissism. And even that word narcissism, we get from the Greek god Narcissus in Greek mythology, if you didn't know. And so um, Narcissus was a stunning and attractive young man who kind of belittled, anybody who would fall in love with him, he would belittle and say, you're not good enough. Look at me, look at you, come on. That was Narcissus. And then one day he was walking by a pool of water and he saw himself in the, in the pool of water. He saw his reflection and he couldn't look away. He was transfixed. And nar- the story goes, Narcissus he starved to death because he couldn't tear himself away from looking at that pool of water, looking in the mirror, as it were, okay? And so, you know, the Greeks would tell that story as a way to warn about the perils of self-obsession. And today, people aren't, look, we aren't looking at the image in the pool or in the image of water. We're looking at our own phones all the time. We see ourselves. Father Martin Bernard said, when the light in most people's faces comes from the glow of a laptop, phone, or TV screen, we're living in a dark age. So social media makes celebrities out of all of us and celebrities are the most miserable people on the planet. Okay? Narcissism has been normalized for an entire society. Okay? That's what's happening. That's what's in the water that we're drinking. And so, and please, okay, um, don't think that I'm just talking about that big, bad world out there. Can you believe those people? Okay, oh, we religious people, we would, never, we would never desire fame and celebrity. Oh, those people, we just need to hunker down in here. No, By the, remember, Jesus is correcting religious people in Luke 14. Okay, and I've seen plenty of Christians, we all have, who, as you Texans say, can strut sitting down. Okay, we've all seen that kind of Christian. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. A proud Christian, that phrase shouldn't exist. Pride is the main reason for divisions in church. It's the main reason. Okay, show me a church where there's division, where there's fighting and quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride at some level. I've seen pride bring down so many leaders in the church. And, you know, we hear about the more obvious sin, the the sin that gets the headline, but it was pride that was feeding it all, this entitlement that I could do or say whatever I wanted. And it starts with a growing pride and ends with someone who thinks they can do whatever they want. And what we come to realize is that practice makes perfect. 
So if you practice pride, you get really good at it. And if you practice humility, that humility grows. You know, Judas, you know, the, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, Judas's betrayal was not spontaneous. He had been stealing from the money bag all along, you know. So the, the disciples, the 12 disciples had a money bag, like we have a ministry account. They had a money bag, and he would just sneak a little bit here and there. So really, whenever Judas betrayed Jesus, it was really more of a culmination of a pattern. He had been practicing greed. He had been practicing backstabbing his brothers in Christ. And so his betrayal was just the culmination of what he had been doing all along. And it's a sobering reminder, one for us today, okay? It's a sobering reminder that the death that results from sin is not always visible at first. Very often, the very first thing that dies is our conviction about it. So when you start, stop, or feel less of that conviction or that pull away from the sin, that's the real uh, red flag. That's the real danger. John Stott said, at every stage, so no matter your, your place in, the journey, in our journey with Christ, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. So how? Like, I'm with you. Okay, let's get, let's get humble. Okay, but how do we practice humility? How do we grow in it? So I have several practices and habits that I want to strongly recommend to you today. You know, and so, so the first one is to serve others. Okay, so again, we, we want to just, we want to be more than hearers of the word. As it says in James, we want to be doers of the word. So how do we practice uh, what we're talking about here? The first is to serve others. One of my favorite stories in the scriptures, I feel like I talk about her all the time, Sister Tabitha in Acts 9. Okay, she dies, and at her funeral, she ends up coming back to life, but at her funeral, it's attended by all of these widows, widows who were down and out in first century Joppa where the funeral happened. No, you know, people didn't help widows out, but they, were, they really didn't, uh, society wanted to act like they weren't even there. But then these widows, they filled her funeral and they were showing their tunics, Acts 9 says, because she made their, Tabitha in the early church made their clothes. She cared for them. She loved them. She served people that nobody else cared about, and she was satisfied in Christ. And that's the model that we can see for our own lives is to serve people that maybe society is ostracized, to serve people on our street, to serve people that need help. That's who we are. You know, Christians started hospitals. We started all, we started virtually every food bank in the world. That's us, because this is who we are. And so what we find is the more that your world is about you, the kind of more angry and tired you end up being. But the more that your world is not about you, the kind of freer you feel. It just has this natural effect. God's kingdom is oftentimes upside down. To be blessed, you give away. To gain your life, you actually lose it. So we serve others because we love them. That's why we do it. But then we end up with like a lighter spirit. You ever like served at a homeless shelter or served at a food bank? You know how you feel after? You're like, oh, that, was, that kind of was great, okay? And so 1 John 4 says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So are you, are you fearful? Maybe a little anxious? Well, go serve somebody. Perfect love drives that fear right out of your heart. The world is teaching you that focusing on yourself brings happiness, but Jesus teaches us that serving others brings true life, that humility, you know, that humbling yourself and putting others first is actually the path that he wants you on. He, that is the way. And so get specific, okay? What is a regular practice where you and your family can serve others and receive nothing in return? Okay, how can you regularly choose the lowest place, as Jesus said in Luke 14? So, uh, you know, we have a group that's starting to serve at a food bank locally. Great, okay, so 
sign up for that. I think they're going to serve once a month or so. So that's great. So that, that's a way you can serve refugees. You know, we have a vital, like a vibrant uh, refugee care ministry here. Uh, Brooks, would you, Kimberly, would you just, so talk to Kimberly. She would love to connect you. They serve every Saturday and more. You don't have to serve every Saturday, but find a way to serve people that, that can give you nothing in return, right? You can serve in our kids' ministry, okay? Um, if you serve in, our, in the room with, with the babies, okay, you serve Nico or, and the babies up there, they're never going to do anything for you. They're never going to pay you back. Probably not going to say thank you, <laughs> okay? Hey, did, Judah Kendrick, he's, uh, I'm trying to teach him, but he's probably not going to say thank you, okay, if, if you serve him up there. And that's good. You know, be, to be part of the, the church body where you're serving our kids and ultimately serving the parents so they can worship freely, that's a good thing for our souls, man. Serving kids ministry, set up teardown team. Y'all come on now. Uh, <laughs> yes, Lord, you can serve our church body that way. You can host or co-host a city group. You can talk to me about that. There's so many ways. So, so the, the encouragement, the teaching is, instead of just going, yeah, I'm going to be like Jesus and serve people, like how? What's the practice? What's the habit? And so your regular schedule so that you set it up to where that's when I serve at this ministry, that's when I go. So first is serving others. That's the way to practice humility. Second is being part of a city group. Nothing keeps you grounded like regularly meeting with people who love you. So yes, it's encouraging, but also like I, you know, uh, one of the reasons that I don't post pictures of myself preaching is because it would embarrass me in front of my city group. And that's a good thing. To, to promote oneself should be embarrassing. And because I have people who love me and care for me, I, do, I don't do that. And so it's a good thing for us to have community and to have love around us all the time. And there's just something, there's just something good about being with God's people regularly that, that helps you not be too big for your britches. Do y'all say that in Texas? Okay, we do now. So, you know, in city group, we have dinner together, and then we study the Bible together, and then we pray for each other. It's a pretty simple deal, but that practice, much like doing one sit-up doesn't get you ready for the beach this time of year, okay? I'm so glad that, like, wearing a shirt at the beach has been normalized for men. It's the best trend. I'm like, I don't want to get sunburned. That's not why. Okay, anyway, so one sit-up's not going to get you beach ready, okay? So going to city group one time is not going to melt all the pride away in your heart, but that regular practice, it's formative, and it helps you grow. Okay, so you can learn more about uh, city groups at the Connect table back there. On our website, there's a Connect tab. You can always fill that out and find out more. Okay, the third, the third way to practice humility is to ask God for help. You can't become humble on your own. <laughs> you know, okay. Uh, we practice, we, we put ourselves in a position to grow. We, we take the lowest place at the wedding and we wait for God to do what he wants, but we need him to truly change. So Romans 8, 26 says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Is that your picture of God? Do you picture God more with like a furrowed brow pointing at you going, I know what you did yesterday. Or he helps us in our weakness. So you, you fall and you struggle and you cry and, you, and he goes, oh, come here. Like a loving father, he welcomes you back home. But likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't even know what to pray for. But the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit of God is praying for you. 
I heard of one pastor, I think I'm gonna start doing this. I heard of one pastor whenever somebody asked in his church, asked him, hey, can you pray for me? Um, he says, uh, yeah, I'm gonna pray for you, but even more than that, you can know that Jesus is praying for you. Jesus, the, the God of gods, the King of kings, helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our time of trial, uh, and he, he loves us. So as, you know, ask God to help you choose humility, to, to walk away from pride and toward love and humility. One way that, as a way that you can confess regularly to God, when you mess up, when, when you hear yourself say something prideful or you see yourself do something prideful, you can pray something like, Father, in that moment, with that attitude, with that action, and you can name it specifically, with the hand gesture I showed them in traffic, okay? God, I was fighting for supremacy, supremacy with you. That's what it's about. God, forgive me. You can just pray that over and over. God, I, I was fighting for supremacy in my family, in my heart, in my job for you there. And God, I, I want to walk over. I, I repent. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes.